The Courage to Grow is Business. The Big Small Business Show made possible by MTN Business, a new world of business. And by Chartered Accountants of South Africa. Lead your industry with a responsible partner. Partner with the CASA today. Hello and welcome to the Big Small Business Show. This is the show for you, our entrepreneurs in South Africa and all across Sadek. On our menu for today, we have our panel discussion and our panel today is with Godfrey Masakela from Amaloba Landscaping and Horticulture Services. This is an interesting uh, interview where we understand that you have to be looking at your efficiencies in a business with a low margin. Our Psyche of Success today is an incredible interview of the journey of Manalisa Swabila, founder, of, founder and CEO of The Riverbed. We're going to be talking about her journey through a number of failures and how she is running a business that bought another business and uh, is possibly looking at purchasing one other. Our expert slot today is with Keir Snyders, she is director of FlickSwitch and we're going to be talking about the darker side of the Internet of Things industry. Uh, do stay tuned for that. On the show, we have uh, our regular panel discussion, and that's where we assist entrepreneurs with any issues that they might be having in their business. Uh, as uh, per normal, I have our gurus with me, uh, Mona Lisa, who is our marketing guru. Welcome. Hi, Alan. Thank and you. And Kumaran Padiachi, who, of course, is our finance guru. How's it? Good. How are you? Good, good, good. Now our guest today is Godfrey Masekela, founder of uh, founder and CEO of Amaloba Landscaping and Horticulture Services. They offer landscape design, implementation, and maintenance, as well as interior landscaping nationwide. They have also completed big projects in Botswana and Mozambique. Let's have a look. Amaloba Horticultural is a business that provides services in landscaping installation design and maintenance while also specializing in interior plantscaping and irrigation. Operating nationwide with a head office located in Centurion, the owner of the company Godfrey Masigela has successfully completed big projects in Botswana and Mozambique, equipping himself and the company with the capacity, expertise and ability to offer horticultural solutions to clients locally and internationally. Though he has been in the horticultural game for over 17 years, the journey of entrepreneurship has not been a safe and smooth one. But regardless of the ups and downs, he dedicates his everyday running of his company to his staff. People used to tell me that, you know, who do you pay first come month end? I said, no, my employees. They said, no, you've got it wrong. I must, pay, I must first pay, you must first pay yourself. Because you are the company. It's a, it's a, good, team, a good team that uh, are sort of uh, assembled, that is surrounding me. I've got uh, excellent people, very hardworking. Amaloba, um, it's a company that is uh, employing people uh, with or without experience because we are doing uh, landscaping and maintenance and we are able to teach people who 
doesn't have any experience so we hire or based on experience or no experience that it's not just a leader in this company he's like more of a father because he's close very close to his employees established in 1999 as a black empowerment business and going through various structural changes Amaloba has made a turnover of over 30 million rand in the last financial year, employing a staff of over 500. With goals of expanding his business even further, Godfrey wants to find ways of financing such growth for the future. The one year short term that I've got in mind and is to keep on tricking my head is how to structure the, uh, the trust for my employees and also um, the how to finance the growth because I'm a bit skeptical you know you, 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 you can have, you can have all these ideas but if you do not have the financial backing it might be a problem As you heard, Godfrey would like to establish an employee trust to include low-income employees in equity participation of the company. Welcome, Godfrey. Well, thank you. Thanks for being here. Before I, I go for some clarifying questions, I would like to make uh, two comments. Uh, first, and first of all, I love the fact that your your garden is your advert there. I mean, it looks so immaculate, the garden at your offices. Well, thank you. And second of all, though, whoever you know, whoever told you you should pay yourself first. Keep away from that person. I think you're 100% right. All entrepreneurs know that we live and die by uh, our employees, and we need to take the sacrifice, and we, we serve them. So I, I completely agree with your, your philosophy in that regard. So let, let me first understand now um, a couple uh, of the issues in, in the business. You've got 500 employees. Are they full-time, or do they come in on projects and, and leave? What is your full-time contingent? Um, my full-time um, employees is 500. Full-time? Full-time employees. Sure. Um, as and when we get projects, that is when we hire um, extra uh, labor force to assist on that pro uh, project and after that they go. And, and how do you um, define big? You speak about big projects. What, 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 how would you define a, a big project? A, in terms of uh, a RAND value and B in terms of maybe months to complete? <coughs> you know, projects with, um, with RAND value, like you, like you rightfully said, we're looking at a million plus. Okay. So you find that a project for a million, it will take us uh, plus minus three months to, to complete. So, and uh, for that, with the current, uh, with the permanent employees, you can't do it. Otherwise, you will stretch. Um, your employees and you'll end up sacrificing or compromising the, uh, the, 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 uh, your current clients. So it's always better to get a crew of um, uh, people that know what they're doing in landscaping and get the casuals and you, you actually keep the project that way. Your, your business is a low barrier to entry business or perceived low barrier to entry business. How do you, um, when, when you get your work, how do you keep yourself unique? Are you fighting on price? Or what, are you fighting on creativity? What is the, the means by which you compete? 
is mainly uh, price. You know, and it's, it's not uh, easy out there. You know, we had to learn our ropes um, as and when we, we go about because, you know, um, it's not all about what you can do. It's all about price, and um, without that, you you can you can't get it done. And and you you speak about now you're doing around thirty million turnover. I just uh, did some back of the cigarette box uh, calculations mm. in terms of your costs, and uh, made an assumption around your cost of sales. Um, are you profitable? Margins, Margins are very low. Margins are low. Yeah. Okay. All right. I think what we'll do is we'll take a break now. After after the break, we'll continue with more questions for Godfrey. Welcome back. Now, our guest in studio today is Godfrey Masakela, uh, who is CEO of Amaloba, which means uh, flower, for those of you who don't know. I just learned that today. Um, Amaloba Landscaping and Horticulture Services. They offer landscape design, implementation, and maintenance, as well as interior plantscaping. Before the break, we were getting a sense of uh, the, the workforce, and we established that that's uh, 500 permanent employees. What is a big uh, contract uh, for the business to, to get, and how they compete? Let's uh, go to you, Monalisa. Um, Godfrey, in you speak, um, your business speaks of implementation and maintenance. So in those, the v I mean, the value of projects, let's say big scale projects, do you sell both the maintenance and the implementation at the same time, or is it optional extra to the client? They are optional extra. Okay. In some instances, you'll find that um, you get uh, a landscaping project mm -hmm. of which you implement or construct, <coughs> and after that, the client will require you to carry on with the maintenance. Okay. But what we do, which is a normal, uh, I think it is uh, a standard in, in, the, in the industry, after you completed the project, there is a three months free maintenance to see that uh, what, you, what you implemented it's working and plants don't die and things like that. And after that, we commence with the um, a long term uh, maintenance. maintenance yes. And then, how do you market to your? How do you at attain your clients? Or is and also is it mostly public or private clients that you work with? Um, to be to be honest with you, at the moment we is a word of mouth. Mm -hmm. um, the clients that uh, we've done business with in the past and the uh, current business mm -hmm. so we um, and also from the newspapers okay. and we, we hardly advertise okay. what's the percentage of your revenue split with maintenance which is regular income versus these projects our regular in income of maintenance is about uh, 12 million so, okay so it's about so that is the constant income mm -hmm. Then you're looking at the, uh, the the balance being the landscaping. Okay, so forty percent uh, of your income is regular maintenance, maintenance. <coughs> a million rand a month approximately. Yeah. And is that how long are those contracts for? They they vary. You know, you'll find that if you look at the um, the duration, 
some are left in four months, some are, they just started. Would you sign them up for how long normally? Normally it's two years. And do you they get renew? Some, you're lucky you get some for three years. Do they some renew? For five, yeah, they do. And two more important questions. You mentioned that you service clients all across the country. Yes. And then you also said projects you want financing for. So let's, let's talk about the projects all across the country. How are you doing maintenance across or projects across the country, logistically, cost-wise? We, we've got uh, an office in the Northern Cape. And that is where we, we've done our big uh, landscaping project there. So we currently, uh, we just completed and we busy the maintenance. So we set up a small office there to take care of that. Oh. So the, the um, I think the future plan is to expand that. Oh. So we also have a um, project in Limpopo. We also have an office that such. Fortunately, it's almost where I come from. Mm -hmm. So and, um, at the rural village, we've got a nursery. That is where we grow our plants. And and that is where we operate Limpopo and distribute. Uh, uh, before, before you jump in, I've got uh, questions relating to that. The nursery, your supply, what percentage of what you are using do you actually produce in terms of your own nursery? I'll say uh, 10%. 10%. 10%. You know, it, it varies because you'll find that um, the projects that we we do design ourselves. We, we try and use um, what we have. Mm -hmm. So unlike where you, you've got to go for a tender, then you specified. It's specified. The landscape architect do spec. And uh, fortunately, you know, um, most of the plants that we grow are indigenous. Looking at the trend these days, the country is crying foul of uh, drought. Mm -hmm. So we, we grow indigenous plants and we lucky that they, they spec as such. You also advice on financing projects and then uh, also trust. your employee trust. Mm. I don't know what your views on employee trust. My suggestion is that that's a highly technical thing, not complicated, but it's best. Uh, my advice would be to find two or three um, HR employees, people that specialize in this. There's consultants, legal backgrounds that specialize in that and uh, evaluate the three of them, choose one and work with that. Mm. Um, I think there are other issues that I'm more concerned about than that aspect and I want to talk about maybe the financing and some other stuff. Yeah. Why do you need financing for projects? You know, sometimes you find that you, you, you get a project and um, you, the, your financial muscle is not, it's not that strong. You'll find that you, you take time to complete it. And you know, and as you know, that time is money. You, you've got people on site, and you can bring the material uh, on on site in time, and it, it becomes a problem. Um, and you know, uh, more especially the projects are a bit far. So to 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 get plans, they hiring trucks and all that. You know, they need uh, money upfront to deliver uh, plans there. So just becomes a problem and it spreads, it spreads us, uh, it sort of spread us very thin and you find that uh, at the end you, you, you struggle to pay salaries at the end of the month. Do you, uh, yeah. Do you not think you're overstaffed? Uh, I mean it's great that you're employing so many people but 500 full time, I'm just working out what I think to be the average <coughs> salary for that uh, type of person 
and uh, timesing it by the 500. Yeah. And, and for your turnover, it just seems you should be doing, you know, I mean, I'm not an expert in your game, but just my, normals, my normal business modeling uh, sense tells me this is, your revenue is too low, you've got too many staff for what the revenue mm. you're doing. And that's part, one part of the problem. Like, like I indicated, you know, our industry is labor intensive. Mm. And most of the, um, uh, the projects that we do, more especially maintenance, the amount of people aspect. So, and the margins are, are very low. So when you say expect, they, um, they, there's certain people that are expected to be they've there? Got, they've got to be there. Oh, okay. So, um, and also, if one goes and leaves, you go to the place. So that is that is the that is how it is. And Do you have a retail element to the, uh, to the business where people can come by? That is my um, uh, long term plan. Okay, it's my long term plan. And last question for me is around the percentage of of your income that's public, like government work tenders, etc., versus uh, corporate yeah. or private sector. Um, government, we. I'll say um, 40 percent. And private 60. And private, private 60. 60 percent. That's no. great. That's great. Nice no. mix. Right. It's uh, it's uh, time for a break now. Uh, my head is spinning. I hope uh, <laughs> you've got some answers and you've got some answers here for for the summaries. Uh, uh, while our heads are spinning, we'll be right back uh, with our summaries. Do stay tuned. A warm welcome back. Jeez, it's uh, summertime now, so it's a hot uh, welcome back. Our guest in studio today is Godfrey Masakela. He is CEO of Amaloba Landscaping and Horticulture Services. Now, they offer landscape design, implementation, and maintenance, as well as interior plantscaping. Before the break, we were getting uh, a, a better sense of the business uh, and uh, uh, how it's currently made up in terms of uh, wh where the clients come from and uh, uh, so some of the strategies in place right now. It's time for summaries. We're going to start with Mona Lisa. Okay, Godfrey. I think um, just to, to speak to the marketing aspect, I'm a little bit hesitant because I think I'd like my colleagues to um, perhaps in their summaries just give a sense of you know, the concern around overextension in terms of the, the labor force. So I'm concerned that if I'm to give you marketing um, you know, applications, it might overextend you further. And it seems that the word of mouth is, is what you're currently reliant on. And I imagine in terms of the public sector in particular, that one is, is um, it's a response to, to, to um, a, a, um, you know, requests from the public space. So I'm a little concerned about giving you marketing um, advice and then overextending. So it might only be relevant when my colleagues extend on the final finances aspect of it. But what I would, l would like to say, which is probably speaking to a long term, I, I have a sense, and maybe you know we didn't have enough time, that there's a missed opportunity <coughs> in terms of the nursery itself. You said earlier that um, in terms of the actual business model, you only utilize 10% of what you're growing. So I'm, I'm wondering no, what... No, no, that was, it wasn't, uh, only produces 10% of what they use. use. Yeah. Okay. 
still still relevant <laughs> in terms of where I was going. I think there's a, there's a missed opportunity in terms of alternative sources of income that are not reliant on you know the landscape projects and the maintenance thereof. I think, as you said, it's a long term, but I think there's a research opportunity, particularly in terms of the plants that you are producing, that may be in demand in other aspects that speak to you know horticulture and speak to to that industry that um, may be an opportunity for you to supply um, and achieve margins that are not um, concentrated on the extensive labor force that go with producing um, those plants. So that would be my advice that I think look at that opportunity and look at how based your nursery can be optimized um, over and above the actual business model that you are using it in. That, that would be my advice from, from mm -hmm. my side. My, my take is this, that <coughs> often strategy can be, uh, strategy can either be, in a business can be designed, thought about, or it can be by default. Uh, if it's by design, there's a bit of the entrepreneur's personality that fuses his way into that. And if it's by default or by accident, there's a lot of the entrepreneur's personality that comes into the default strategy. So there's three things I worry about here. One is that whilst it's noble, you're employing so many people, and you care for them. I can see the father figure, nature, the family, the building the homes, even lighting up now. And that's mm -hmm. a great thing. But realize this, that you'll put that at risk if you don't take care of the parts I'm just going to mention now. Um, so the very thing that is personal to you, it's a good thing, but you're putting that at risk. And, and you either your revenue is too low or you're employing too many people, whichever way. My sense is you're not going to want to reduce the number of staff, so you need to get that revenue mm -hmm. up at the right price. The second thing is that uh, on the personality side is the way you talk about pricing. You said, no, I compete on price, and it was almost a resolved in nature. And third was the way you referred to marketing. No, I don't market, I don't advertise, it's just word of mouth. I think that's coming more from you, and that's doing a disservice to the business where you find yourself in now. So I would suggest that you, you look at pricing and the markets you want to focus on, otherwise you're in serious trouble. I would also advocate that you focus on certain geographic areas mm. because I think there's a lot of seepage and costs and profit loss in jump in going to different, too many different regions, just where the opportunity is. You should rather focus more purposefully on that. So choose your markets, be purposeful on your pricing, and then you can focus on marketing after mm. that. But I started with the first part about the personality. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to slightly disagree on a technicality with, with Kumar, and he's going to agree with me after I mention it, because <laughs> I know you meant it. Mm. I, I think the, the, the revenue versus the employees is, is, is not the issue, because the issue is your ratio between the two. It's mm. not what it is, it's the ratio. So even if you pick up this, the, the turnover, mm -hmm. the mental model will, will be that I need more, more people. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, so, okay. so to me, it's a consciousness. That's why I say it's a subtle uh, nuance on there. Is to me, it's about your productivity. Is, is that, that is the space to go. Now, if they are, as you said, de defining how many people you have to have, then the only working part you've got left where, where there's cost involved is your management system is how efficient your management system is mm -hmm. and how, how, what the ratio is from a one manager to, to, to his people. Uh, that, that is where you can save costs there. So in those instances where they define the number of people, I would work very, very uh, hard on uh, improving my management system to get better efficiency out of that ratio. 
The second, the second place that I think uh, where money goes is the speed to execute. So, um, by the way, I'm agreeing with you in terms of I think the number of employees is the wrong number uh, for, for the turnover, but I don't want to go there because it's mentioned. But the speed of execution is the other space. So if you look, at, you know, you'll see in certain environments, if you go, for example, to a hotel in, in uh, Scandinavia, you'll see a whole breakfast area and there's one person running, one person running that whole place. You come to South Africa and there's 15 people running that whole place. The Same area. Still poor. Uh, <laughs> and this, and, and they, it just is, one, one is using one person who's paid a lot more and here they're using 15 people. So to me, that's the mental model is, is, is um, the speed to execute, is how you look at when you get a, a job, if you, if you do, could do it in 20 days, how do you do it in 19 days? And start shaving off, mentally shaving off one day at a time till eventually you can do what you used to do in 20 days, in 15 days now. And you can still charge because you know your competitors are charging at the 20 day uh, execution. But you, you're finishing in 15. Uh, 15 days. And the last piece for me is around retail, uh, which uh, you say is your, your there's higher margin in retail. Uh, it's a different competency mm. and it will require an investment, which you might or might not have. But it'll give you the, the freedom, the, the cash perhaps to, uh, to use to, to fund the business. Added to that, I would uh, uh, think about one other thing, and I've seen this happening now, particularly in the agricultural space, where they're using agricultural space for eventing. In other words, between the vineyards or in the, in the, where the plants are, they put tables and people have lunches uh, amongst the, uh, within the nursery. Not, not as a separate thing, but actually in the, in the nurseries. There's a trend happening now around that globally. So that will then provide additional margin which you can use to fund. Okay. Mm -hmm. After the break, I'm joined by Mona Lisa Zwabila, founder and CEO of the Riverbed Agency. And we're going to discuss her amazing journey as an entrepreneur, including her company Ethos called Greater Good. We'll be right back. This is the Big Small Business Show. Welcome back. Now our leadership series will continue in two weeks time and today I'm joined by a lovely lady for an interview in our usual slot called Psyche of Success. This is where we understand the psyche of entrepreneurs on their journey. Now, Mona Lisa Zwabila founded uh, the Riverbed in 2007, grew from strength to strength, acquired another company, and since 2013 has uh, spotted or sported a whopping 344% growth year on year. Mona Lisa also put a company ethos in place called Greater Good, and this uh, means both management and employees put greater good into everything they do. Welcome, Mona Lisa. Thank you for having me. So interesting yeah. having two Mona Lisas <laughs> on one show. I know, it's, it's, <laughs> a, it's very cool actually. So tell me about uh, how, how your journey as an entrepreneur began. Um, I, I'm almost convinced being an entrepreneur is something innately within one. It's, it's not the first business I've started. Uh, but I did start Riverbed 10 years ago. I want to know before. <laughs> I want to at the beginning. Oh gosh, those, are, those I've kind of buried <laughs> in my cupboard. The only thing I've taken with me are the lessons that, that were learned from it, uh, which have been quite several. But this is the third business I've, I've started, the mm. only one I've succeeded in. Mm -hmm. um, That's important. Eh? Did <laughs> you bring the important. lessons from each, each I, one? I, have I, you, are you I, using I, the... Yeah, I'm, the I'm stacking <laughs> lessons up 
up to year on year. So wha uh, what would you great. say the lessons were from the, the previous two uh, um, mistakes or failures? Passion and ideas aren't enough. Okay, you, you, wow, you, right. you really need to have an understanding of the market you, you, you want to go into, an understanding of the landscape, competition, etc. And also, most importantly, how to access the market to actually generate revenue as a result of that. And I think sometimes when we're driven by passion alone, we don't do the, you know, the necessary legwork to ensure that you build a sustainable business. And what, like, surely b when you when you started the the this business now the riverbed, mm. you you came you were anxious you were nervous that you were going to do it again. How do you overcome that? Mm. If somebody is watching right now and yeah. thinking, she she fell twice and stood up a mm. third time. Yeah, I should, uh, that's courageous. Mm. Look, the third time around, I was um, wiser, older, mm. <laughs> and uh, I, I had been in, in a particular industry for a while. So I've, I've, I had been in the marketing industry for a good um, eight years uh, by that time. So very much understood the, the sector, business, clients, etc. So it definitely made the journey and the transition into being an entrepreneur again a lot easier. Um, and and that's, that's probably why we've been able to be still be around 10 years later. Okay, mm. so now day one you open up the business, uh, you, you have a client or, or in, in, no. in tow or you just... No, no clients. Yeah. I went through a crossroad moment um, in terms of working um, you know, for a business, I was actually MD of that business, so that also brought um, you know, with it some acquired skill. Um, but I, I, I literally left uh, 10 years, October 10 years ago. Um, and the crossroad moment was to either work for to a standard bank at the time or to, to start my own business. And I thought it was time to really um, give it a go. So no, no clients. Uh, what I, what, the other thing I did bring with me was uh, my reputation, which I think is an important thing because yeah. that, that gives you access to people um, that know your work. Um, but it did take time. It, it took a few months before I actually landed um, any business, and, and even then, it wasn't enough to <laughs> to, to barely survive. Um, so it was a journey, but but one that I, I you know continued knocking on for a very long time. Did you ever doubt yourself in that time, post starting, before mm. profit? Um, this this time around, I didn't doubt it. What what I knew for sure was that I, I I had a compelling value proposition. I knew for sure that I had the skill to to deliver what I wanted to. Um, the only thing was time. You you you, you, I, you need to be able to consistently knock on doors. Access is also always a big thing with um, new entrepreneurs or a new business. Um, but you're doing that on a regular basis allowed you know obviously the business to take off and to get the right types of clients on board. And then, and then uh, you bought another, you acquired another business. Also, mm. um, a scary moment to, to buy, to bring in who are these people, what's their culture like, are they going to um, change what we've mm. built here? Correct. The acquisition was a big step. Uh, we'd been around in the market for six years, so, you know, had begun to establish ourselves as a below the line agency. Um, so the acquisition was important from a growth perspective. Growing organically did take a bit of time and, and we needed the capability that came with acquiring um, you know, Chili Bush Communications, which was an above the line agency. The, the one thing I didn't realize in buying the business is that when, you, you know, when you're discussing the deal, you're talking numbers and you're looking at balance sheets and income statements, what, you, what we didn't spend a lot of time looking at were the people. And that's probably been my biggest uh, learning uh, from the acquisition, that especially 
especially in this sector, you, you, you do buy people, you buy their skills, um, their culture, their thinking, etc. And um, that, that's a big learning um, in terms of if, I, you know, if we pursue an acquisition opportunity again. Is that on the cards? Uh, it, it is definitely on the cards. Um, the, this industry, uh, the advertising industry, is, is evolving all the time. There's so much disruption in the marketplace. Um, so one does need to look at um, acquiring businesses that have certain competencies. So digital would be you know, an example of, of, of that. Mm. Greater good, the concept of greater good, is that just a, a slogan or something you yeah. live by? Or um, what, what does it mean? Yeah. Once again, we um, the, the sector is very competitive. Um, what and 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 I got this from reading a, a, a book by Simon Sinek. I'm not sure if you're familiar sure. with him, and, and and he talks really a lot about purpose, and and how people buy into in, into things that are purpose driven. So, you know, for us, it it was really more about finding and articulating what our purpose was as as, as a business. Um, giving back has always been something that's been important but inculcating that into our business and into our fabric is something that has taken time um, it's it took probably a year just for us to be able to articulate it um, to be able to understand what it was and then to really put steps in place to be able to begin to live it um, strive towards living it on a daily basis and 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 um, showing the impact of what greater good is um, for Riverbed and and for the communities that we serve as well if there's an entrepreneur out there that's watching this and, and uh, wanting to give up, mm. you know, mm. which I'm sure, even in the good times, sometimes we wake up yep. some mornings wondering mm. what that Sydney guy was <laughs> yeah. all going on yeah. about, this yeah. why. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. What would you say to them? My, my biggest learning this year, because 2017, I think for, for most businesses, has been one fraught with challenge, I think. Um, so my, my biggest learning really is that this, this picture of success that we all have is really built on failure, <laughs> it's built on challenge, it's built on perseverance, it's built on tenacity. Um, and, and if we get that right, um, understanding that you know, success isn't a moment in time, it really is this journey over the years um, that, that is built on all of these things, then, then, then you know, we persevere. So that's always my advice to entrepreneurs. I think you need to be clear about what it is you, you're trying to achieve. Um, my other big thing is that life gets in the way, so your vision really has to be quite compelling mm. and strong enough to, to take people with you. But um, yeah, if, if, if you're very certain about the goal, uh, giving up shouldn't be an option. But I think it's really about trying to find how to find solutions uh, with the challenges that you have and also partnering and bringing in the right people to help you on your journey. That's a good mm -hmm. place to end. Yeah. Melissa, thank you so much Great. for being on thank the show. Great, thank you, only a you're pleasure. You're absolute inspiration <laughs> I've, and I've we wish you it. really huge mm -hmm. success into the future. Thank you, thank you. Up next, I'm joined by Kias Snyders, Director of FlexSwitch, and we're going to unpack the darker side of the IoT, that's the Internet of Things industry. We'll be right back. Welcome back. This is the Big Small Business Show. For those of you who don't know, IoT is the abbreviation for the Internet of Things. 
A couple of weeks ago, we had uh, Kay Snyders, who is uh, this, the director of FlickSwitch, uh, here with me in studio, talking about the inter Internet of Things and what opportunities uh, uh, are in store for you as an entrepreneur and how to perhaps unlock some of those opportunities. But there is a darker side to the Internet of Things, and that is the ability to hack into devices that previously were any, no one even thought was uh, hackable. Welcome to studio. Thank you. So we hear about the fact that you know that uh, our cars are, are very vulnerable to um, hacking. I mean, who would have thought if you said to Henry Ford that you know, he, I suppose he wouldn't know what hacking was, but that you could hack into a car, the guy would say, you, you're smoking. Yeah, a car or a horse, you know, anything <laughs> can be hacked. Yeah, it's, it's a, fr a frightening prospect. You know, we talk about smart cars and smart homes, but those uh, things become a lot less smart if there's somebody else able to tap into those. And it's often uh, uh, you know, a consideration that comes after the fact. Whenever there's technology, technological development, uh, the bad guys will see what they can do about cracking in and, and breaking into those and, and using your gear, often without your knowledge, for their own purposes. So to give you an example, the, the microcontrollers that go into these devices, those, if somebody else is controlling them, can be used for other purposes. So you could tell them to do your bidding. You could tell them to do a denial of service attack on some other competitor or, or, or some other target. So the, the whole idea that this uh, level of sophistication has moved to the edge of the network, that you now have computing capabilities inside your fridge, your microwave, your toaster, was inconceivable only a few years ago. So there's a parallel industry that has developed in IoT, and that is the IoT security industry. Yeah. It's a dark side, but it unlocks opportunities. You can make a career out of focusing only on security problems in IoT. So let's say, look, because the last time you were in studio with me, we spoke about the, the ecosystem, the IoT ecosystem, and we spoke about 3D printing and a whole bunch of other inputs into that, that market. Security is obviously a huge one. And um, so are, are there specialists who just specialize in, so if I was thinking about security, um, I was in technology, I was in the security industry, would I specialize in a certain type of, of device or would I just broadly um, be a specialist in security? So I have to say that is not my field of expertise but it's, an, it's a rapidly evolving field and there are many players and the complexity comes from the fact that we are still working out the standards. We are still working out the protocols. So a lot of what's out there isn't properly secured. And if you know what you're doing and you're an expert at attacking those, call them vectors, yes. you can break into them. We have documented cases of this happening in our own country. Often the, the purpose is ne not necessarily hacking, maybe financial gain. So there was a, a well-known case just a few years ago of traffic lights being uh, vandalized for the SIM cards that were in the controllers. That type of thing is also prone to keep happening. Yes. If you don't lock down those SIM cards, if you don't make sure that whoever's liable for those SIM cards uh, has a block on those lines, you have a problem. Just coming back to let's the, the initial example of, of the, the vehicle, um, a, a big consideration obviously in designing IoT it is going to have to be the security and the more, um, the more dangerous the, that, that device is, um, the more uh, the, I think regulation will be in place in, in, in to ensure that security is indeed there because like uh, just using the two examples here, a car 
you know, if, if it's hacked into, it can create a cause death. Yes. Yeah. Uh, airplane, you yep. know, can cause huge death. Um, so, so are there, to your knowledge, are there bodies that are, are looking uh, at the security and setting a minimum standard um, f around how IoT devices are actually created? Again, I think that's an evolving process. In cars and airplanes, we have a well-established security safety industry, but not so much in toasters or microwaves yes. or farm implements that all of a sudden are now connected to the internet. Those can also, in the wrong hands, be used to do serious damage. And are there standards in place for that? Not so much. It's in flux. It's happening, but we're not there yet. So coming back, though, also a couple of weeks ago, you spoke about... Uh, the, you gave us a farm example about all these devices, uh, you know, they're looking at dam levels, etc. I suppose it could be, and I, I feel like a doom and gloom merchant here, but it can be used also like to, from, from a terrorist point of view, to, to release a dam. It could be uh, used uh, maybe to destroy crops and give the wrong information. I mean, it, it's a, it becomes a, um, a double-edged sword. It's both good and, and potentially very dangerous. Yeah, and that's, you know, if you think of drones, what those could be used to for, you know, payloads or spreading diseases. It's, it's, it's very scary if you start considering what is possible. And it's, you know, it's, it's a very important uh, facet of the IoT industry. So a lot more effort needs to go into doing this, ensuring that we're doing this properly. Is, is just, you spoke about drones. Let's just talk about drones as part of this IoT industry. Is it, does it fit into the industry? Is it an input? Is it a a mobile device that carries stuff? Or how, how are drones seen in the industry uh, in relation to IoT? So drones come from the military um, technology background. And, and drones have evolved in capability and can do a lot more and fly a lot further and feed back a lot more data than they used to be able to. So in almost every industry where there's geographic expanse that needs to be covered, drones come into play. And these are often GIS type systems mm. where intelligent mapping is happening. But it's not just about the visuals. The actual sensory type of analysis you can do mm. um, can go a lot deeper than that. So you know, the, the drone industry is evolving rapidly. It's, a, it's an example of legislation only coming after the fact in many countries. Mm. Lots of people were buying drones over the internet and flying them over their neighbors pools mm. before we had proper rules in place mm. to, to um, govern how those drones are used. South Africa, I understand, is one of the, the tightest security around, around drones in the world. But um, the, the one thing, yeah, you, you are Dutch heritage, right? You were born in, in Holland. Born in South Africa, born but to Dutch parents. To yeah. Dutch parents. Do you know, just I'm going to, this is a DIY, do you know, um, DYK, do you know that... Um, that Holland has got a, a drone police, they've got a unit around uh, that is particularly designed to capture drones uh, that are illegal. Do you know that? Yeah, that's, that's a, a fascinating uh, um, parallel sort of industry. Yeah. But even in Cape Town, I don't know um, if, if it's public knowledge, but in, in Cape Town, drones are being used to combat gang violence. Yeah. Drones are being used in the Kruger Park to combat um, yeah. you know, uh, poaching, poaching. Of, of rhinos. So uh, we've uh, you know, taken a leaf from the Dutch and are applying drones to all sorts of interesting problems. But the other side is they're also being used to drop uh, of uh, drugs into the, into the prisons and arms in the prisons. <laughs> 
<laughs> There's always a good side and a bad side uh, to everything. Thanks once again for being in studio with us too. I think I think this the show and um, it gets uh, spiced up with uh, technology, and uh, it's good to have you here in studio with us. Thanks for having me again. Well, it's time for my impressions for today, and uh, today I want to take uh, my impressions from the interview with Mona Lisa. Uh, she said something that was resonated completely with me. When I asked her why she felt and what she learned, she said to her words were that passion and ideas are not enough. Passion and ideas are not enough. And I think that's such an important thing to get across to us uh, as entrepreneurs. If you read any book on entrepreneurship, they'll tell you that you've got to have passion and we sort of retrofit what we, what we do to what we are passionate about. I've spoken about this many times on the show. And, and to me, uh, it's important that we dist uh, make a huge distinction about using our passion and what we are passionate about in the business and, and uh, well, we can say it on the show, bullshitting ourselves that uh, what we uh, are do is what we are passionate about. There are two subtly but importantly different uh, concepts. So if you are running a funeral home, it doesn't mean that you need to be passionate about dead people. So I'm going to give you five alternatives to think about before starting a business. So yes, you have to have passion. You have to learn how to embed that passion in your business. But before you start, you have to understand whether you have the right model or not. Does the model work? Many models do not work. Uh, and we're going to maybe discuss a, a bit more about this uh, next week. Number two, do you have the right team? Even if you're a one-man band, are you the right person to, to run this, this business? And as you start to employ, are these the right people? Or are you employing people who you like uh, that don't have the right skills? Number three, is the market the right size for you? Very often we make a, a, a decision to get into a market. I recently spoke to an entrepreneur who wanted to get into a market. He had an experience. Uh, what uh, Michael E. Gerber, the, uh, the author of the E-Myth Revisit, calls an entrepreneurial spasm and, and says, ah, he wants to get in that business. But when you analyze it, you know, there's all of like maybe 50 or, or 80 people in the whole of South Africa that can buy that, that service that he wants to sell. So do you have the right market size? Number four, do you have the right USP unique selling proposition? Very often we go in with a bad USP, which is price or personal service. I've spoken that enough times uh, on the show, but we haven't thought about what differentiates ourselves, and then we start a, a business. Important to think about that upfront. And finally, do we have the right financing runway? Do we have enough money uh, for, for this journey? Do we know where the sources of funding will be, either friends, fools, and family, or your financial institutions, uh, perhaps uh, an investor, uh, perhaps a, a bank? Well, that's it for my impressions for today. Remember, this is your show, and we want to hear what you want to be talking about on the show. Or if you'd like to be on the show, I was recently at an event, and somebody said, how do I get onto the show? I said, if you watch the show, you hear me saying, email us on bigsmall at bdtv.co.za or interact with us on Twitter at bsbs underscore bdtv. It's goodbye from me, and remember, if you think it, write it down and make it a reality. On our menu today, we have our regular panel discussion, and today's panel discussion is with Godfrey Masachela from Amaloba. Come on, God! I want to say La Bola every time. Okay, let's start again.
The Big Small Business Show is brought to you by Chartered Accountants of South Africa. Transform the future of your business. Partner with the CASA today. And the courage to grow is business. MTN Business. A new world of business.